So glad that you're with us today. So we're going to dive into Mark, and uh, the title of today's message is Jesus Over the Supernatural. As we have been going through the Gospel of Mark, we've, we've gone to see how Jesus is supreme and has authority over all of life. He's done many miracles up until this point in his earthly ministry. In the previous passage, as Pastor Kevin walked us through last week, Jesus calms creation by the word of his mouth, and he is preeminent over the chaos of what creation is. And so we're going to be looking at that today, uh, this idea of Jesus being over the supernatural. But because I'm me, I can't just do things simple. So when you came in, a couple people said, oh, Corey's preaching because there's two sets of notes. That's true. Uh, So you should have gotten two pieces of paper as you came in today. And what I also want to do is help us understand how we look at the Bible through the lens of the correct questions we need to ask as we engage scripture. Because Bible study is often something that we can kind of look at and say, well, I'm just, I'm going to read the passage and I'm, ho- I'm going to be hopeful that I'm going to get something out of it. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open the Bible to, to today's verse of the day or whatever, and I'm going to directly look at how it applies to me. And that's actually not how we want to engage the Bible. The Bible is first not written to us. It's written to the original audience of who penned it. So while it is true for us, it's not to us. And we want to make sure that we understand those things. Because I don't know if you're like me, but there have been times when I get into Bible study that I get completely stuck. Anybody else have that experience before? You start reading through a passage and you're like, okay, one, how come this looks like it doesn't make sense? And then secondly, how do I actually fit it into the whole story of what I'm supposed to be reading? Uh, This actually happened to me in our Daniel study with our young adults in the fall. We were going through the book of Daniel, which is super prophetic. And as we got into the prophecy parts, I was like, apparently one nation's a goat and one nation's a ram. And then somebody else shows up and it's this whole big thing. And I was looking at it, telling my young adults, your guess is as good as mine. Because as we dive into it, we get stuck with these little places. And I had to remember that going through scripture and studying the Bible is actually a process of work, not just a process of hope. So when we get into Mark's gospel, there are actually some major and significant themes that relate to the entirety of the book. He's not just throwing different stories in to help us try and engage our our, our imagination and try and help us understand. He's actually promoting a question from the beginning to the end of the book. It starts off in Mark chapter 1 that this is the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's about the kingdom of God. So this is the main theme of Mark's gospel. But there are also these subcategory themes that we see all throughout the book. And so here are some of them. And you've got a blank space in your first sheet of notes specifically so that you can put whatever you want on it. I would recommend this stuff. Here's the first theme. Oh, actually, some of our young adults are here. You could probably give me some of the themes if you were paying attention at all. What's one of the themes of Mark's gospel? I'm a terrible teacher. I'm just going to do it myself. That Jesus is God based on what he does. So in, in some of the other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus is God based on the claims that he makes or based on the teachings that he uses or in Matthew's gospel in particular, how he is the long-awaited Messiah, the king of the Jews. But in Mark's gospel, Mark wants to promote the question, who is Jesus really? He does these things that no other human can do. So Jesus is God based on the things that he does. The second one is this, the son of man motif. 
This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it almost 70 times in the New Testament. It's only used 74 times in the entire New Testament, and it's primarily used by Jesus himself. And this is a heavenly title as reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus is, is seen, he's pictured as the person who stands in the presence of the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days says, I'm going to give this man the kingdom. And because I'm going to give this man the kingdom, Jesus represents that as he comes to fulfill God's plan for the kingdom with the new covenant and the church and what God has established in the world. The third thing is this. It's the messianic secret. Jesus doesn't actually just come out and say who he is very often. Have you noticed that? When you read through the gospels, he's kind of like, when he does a miracle, he'll often tell people, now don't go tell anybody. Well, you kind of think that if you were the savior of the world, you might want people to actually know that you do these things. But he's got different perspective. He's got a different end game. He wants people to trust in him and believe that he's the Messiah. And he doesn't feel the need to just come right out and say it. And this actually flows all the way to Mark chapter 8, verses 24 through 27. And when we get there, that's, that's the pinnacle of the whole book. That's exactly where Mark is trying to lead us. He's leading us to this question, who is Jesus really? And then there's this fourth one, that Jesus has an exclusive claim to discipleship, that he is calling people to followership or apprenticeship under him in the way that he does life. And so all the, all the way through the book of Mark, you see, and then Jesus went and did this thing, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus taught this, and then immediately Jesus went here. And we're supposed to understand that Jesus is on mission, but Jesus is on mission with his disciples. He's bringing them along with him in everything that he does. And then lastly, and certainly not least important, is the teachings of Jesus. It's the main theme that doesn't actually happen until the second half of Mark's gospel, where we really start to see Jesus making statements and claims and teaching his disciples the things that in other gospels we actually see a little bit earlier on. So those are the themes of Mark. And as we go through the passage today, we're going to see these themes. I'm going to point them out to us as we go. But I also want us to understand that this is the main idea of the text. So this is the text, and then we're also going to, how do we get there? Does that make sense? Everybody tracking? Good. So the big idea today is that Mark 5, 1 through 20 shows us that Jesus has divine authority over the chaos of hell. Okay? So last week, Jesus has authority over creation. This week, Jesus has authority over the spiritual world, specifically the chaos of hell. So here's what we need to do. We need to understand this question first. As we engage Bible study, we have to ask the question, what is the context? As I said earlier on, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean for them. The original audience was the primary hearers of the text, so we have to ask the question. So what is the context? Well, Jesus has been with his disciples. This is probably still in the early part of his ministry. He's been walking around specifically the area of Capernaum in the region of Galilee. He's been doing miracles. He's healed a person of, of demon possession. He's healed a paralytic uh, who came through the roof. He's uh, walked with his disciples through these different situations. He's done a little bit of teaching, but now he's taken his disciples into a boat. He's fallen asleep on the lake. They've been really afraid. They woke him up and said, don't you care? And Jesus says, don't you have faith? And then they get to the other side of the boat. So they, being the disciples, went across the lake, which is the Sea of Galilee, to the region of what's called the Gerasenes. Now, there's, there's a little bit of 
question as, as to where Jesus actually landed. But here's an interesting map to help us understand. So this is kind of the Capernaum area where Jesus is, for lack of better terminology, his base of operations was. And he took the disciples across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, into, <clears throat> excuse me, what's called the Gerasenes region or the Gergesenes region. Depending on what author, what New Testament author you read, they use a little bit different language. And it's not because it's inconsistent with each other. It's just where he landed is somewhat up for debate. Whether he landed at the northern region or he landed kind of at the, a little bit more southern part, this is where Jesus has gone. So that's kind of the geographic history. Well, what about the historical significance or the literary context? We also have to ask that question. Because when we go to the Bible, sometimes we're reading poetry Sometimes we're reading prophecy. Sometimes we're reading historical narrative. Sometimes we're reading end times apocalyptic literature. And all of those things actually need to be read differently. So this particular story is historical narrative. It's something that means that you are being told a story as it's laid out the events of the things that happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so there's not really a whole lot of application necessarily to our lives because there's no commands given. There's no, and you are to go and do this. And sometimes when we engage the Bible, what ends up happening is we only think of the question, what does it mean to me? But instead, we're missing the opportunity to ask the question, what does it mean? We can remove ourselves from the equation. So in this region of the Gerasenes, mostly a Gentile region, and, uh, the, and what we're going to see here is a pretty significant interaction between Jesus and someone else. Now, there's another word here that you, I don't know if you can really see it well, but it's the Decapolis. Well, you can see it. That's good. And the Decapolis is kind of this 10-city region, mostly of Roman garrisons. So a Roman garrison would be like a legion of Roman soldiers that was placed at a particular outpost to kind of hold the, uh, the, the Roman occupation in that area. So as Jesus gets out of the boat, previous passage that we talked about last week, it says, a man with an evil spirit, this is actually not a great word translation, it should be unclean spirit, came from the tombs and met him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could... Look at the language here. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. See, the tombs in these days were very sad places. Obviously, they're sad places now because they represent death. But in the first century context, if you had some sort of abnormality, if you had some sort of physical defect, or if you were demon-possessed, oftentimes these people would be sent out into these areas because they were a harm to themselves and to society. And because they were misunderstood and they couldn't be, this person could not be contained, he lived outside of what the typical societal structure actually was. But what's interesting is the language that's used. A man with an unclean spirit comes. Now for the Jews at this time, there was nothing worse than being ceremonially unclean. The Jews could not touch a dead body. If they did, they became unclean. Uh, for some, some authors and some uh, some scholars would actually suggest if they touched the robes of somebody who had been dead, then they would also become unclean. So for Jesus to go to a Gentile region, mostly, across the lake, of, across the Sea of Galilee, and to be approached by somebody who had had an unclean spirit in them, his Jewish disciples, his good little buddies are going, whoa, 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 we can't be here. This is not a place that we're actually allowed to be. Jesus, what are you doing? 
And so the original audience of the book of Mark, they would have been asking this same question because largely a lot of them were Jewish Christians who were living in Rome. And Mark is writing this. And remember the theme, the kingdom of God is coming. It kind of looks different than you thought the kingdom of God looks. But this Jesus, he's doing things that no other Jewish person would do. Look at what he says here. Verse four and five, for he, this demon-possessed man, had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet. Look at the language here. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Remember that thought, okay? Night and day among the tombs and in the hills country, he would cry out, which is actually curse, and cut himself with stones. And that's, that's literal. He would take stones and he would be cutting his body and bleeding. Now, What's really important for us to understand is that the words that's used for uh, this subdue him is actually the word to tame a wild animal. So think about this for a, uh, for a quick second with me. We have a man who has got an unclean spirit. We're actually going to find out in a minute that it's several who lives outside of the typical geographic region of his people group, is, is a cast out, and he's not able to be there, but he's also not been able to be subdued. No one was strong enough to tame him. Well, what kind of animals live in the desert in this time? Lions, bears, wolves, things that would kill a person. We're supposed to be getting this understanding that nobody should be around this guy. But he comes to Jesus. He kneels down in front of him. His, his chains and shackles couldn't contain him anymore to do, due to this demonic invasion. And this man was constantly abusing himself under the influence of this unclean spirit. It's almost the imagery of understanding that this demon didn't just want to physically torment this man. He wanted to torment him in any way possible. And now while this is not a sermon on demonology, we could probably do that one time, to understand this is to, is to make sure that we realize that Satan has always been a murderer. That's his whole MO. He likes to lie and he wants to kill people. What he actually wants to do most is deface God in his glory. But guess who he has absolutely no power over? God in his glory. So the next best thing to do would be to destroy or to maim or to uh, degrade the image of those who are made in God's likeness. Why does the devil attack humans? Because we look like Jesus. Why does the devil hate Christians? Because we're representatives of Jesus in the world. So that's kind of the first question. We get a little bit of context around what we're looking at. An event that took place to describe the ministry of Jesus about these things that are going on in this region of the Gerasenes. And so then we have to ask the second question. Well, who is the original audience and what does it mean to them? This is really, really important. Because as I said, the Bible cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. The original audience is key to understanding what it is that we are reading. So remember what I said, Mark is writing about this vast kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish in the world, that he's the long-awaited Messiah, even though he's being a little secretive about it. And as he's promoting this new way of being, this new kingdom and how it's coming, the people who are seeing Jesus do these things have to be asking the question, who is this guy? How can he possibly be doing the things that he's doing? So to the original audience, Mark is building an argument. And he's promoting these different themes all the way through. But we have to ask some of these other questions, like who is speaking? Uh, who are they speaking to? What kind of key themes from the whole book are present? 
So here's what happens in verse 6. When he, being the demon-possessed man, saw King Jesus from a distance, he ran down and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice. And this is very, very important. Don't miss this. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Okay, remember, Jesus is not super open about who he is yet. But the demon rightly names him in his presence as he gets down in front of him. Why? We have to ask that question. And then he says, swear to your God that you won't torture me. This word torture could also be the word destroy, which is really, really significant. Why would the demon rightly name Jesus? Well, because he knows. There's absolutely no question who he's in the presence of. While this demon has the ability to, uh, to kind of downplay and, and degrade the humanity of this individual, he has no power in the presence of Christ. None. And so what's his response? He runs and he falls on his knees in front of him and he begs, don't torture me. Swear to your God that you will not destroy me. This is a very interesting interaction because the Greek word for this falling at his feet is actually the Greek word proskuneo. And it's the, the imagery of that is a dog coming and licking his master's hand in submission. What's the demon doing? He's submitting to a greater authority. He thinks that he has ultimate authority because the demons have now possessed this man for so long and made him an outsider and made him a cast out. But now he is not willing to worship, he must worship in the same way that a dog would come and lick his master's hand in submission. This demon is forced to bow down, realizing that he is in front of a superior force. And that this, is, this is something that we need to understand, Christians. The enemy will kneel before Jesus. It's just a matter of time. He knows his place before King Jesus. It's not because he necessarily wants to bow. It's that he must bow and be subject to Jesus' right authority and his kingdom rule. See, Satan may be the, the prince of the power of the air. That's the New Testament language that's given to him. But in the presence of Christ, he is absolutely powerless. When, when we look at some of the, the language of the New Testament about how Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it, it's actually a little bit of a bad reading because what we're actually seeing in the text is that when Jesus makes that claim is that the gates of hell will be pushed back. That's the job of the church. We're to push against the gates of hell and that Jesus promises that it's going to happen. And so... This, the reason that he falls down is because Jesus says to him, you need to come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus says, instead of, you ask, instead of the demon asking Jesus what his name is or rightly identifying him, Jesus says, what's your name? To put him in his, in his place. And the demon responds, my name is Legion because we are many. Remember what I said earlier, that the Decapolis was a group of 10 major cities around the region in the Sea of Galilee, mostly in a Gentile area, where legions of Roman soldiers would be placed. Now, a legion of Roman soldiers was approximately 5,600 troops. Now, we're supposed to get a play on words here. We're not supposed to actually understand that this man was, uh, was oppressed by 5,600 uh, uh, demons. But the idea is that he was so bound to this demonic oppression because such force was in him that the opportunity for him to be free was, humanly speaking, 
impossible. The unclean spirit, something that's unholy, it's demonic, it's, its purposes are for destruction, is bound by Satan in rebellion to God and his good and flourishing plans for humanity and for the glory of Jesus. By Jesus commanding the demons to leave, he ex- exercising his own authority. With Jesus' question to the legion's name, he was putting that legion under his authority saying, no, no, you, you don't get to out me and who I am. I'm going to out you and who you are. What's your name? And he responds, we are legion for we are many. What the point of this is not so much to understand how many demons there were, but to impress on us how much this was an insurmountable issue that this man was facing. Okay, so that's the second question. Who are we speaking to? What's the the audience? What does it mean to them? Here's the third one. What does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about Christ? What does this passage say about our theology? And the little subtle questions we ask in in reference to that are, well, what does God do that's significant in this passage? Or what does Jesus do that makes him look glorious and makes him look as the king? Well, look at this in verse 10. And he, being the demons, begged Jesus, and this is not like he's getting the math wrong. He is just a reference to all because only one of these demons was speaking more than likely. But look at what he does. He begs Jesus. But not just once. Again and again, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to send them among the pigs and allow them to go into them. See, the demons don't want to be displaced, but it's actually theologically more significant than just, don't let us leave the area because we're at home here. The question is, don't destroy us. Jesus, knowing the end, where the demons will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire where they will forever be tormented apart from God's love, he's, he's saying, don't send us there now. It's not the time because they know when the time is coming. They don't know the exact time. Oh, but they know that Jesus is going to reign supreme and that he's the king of the world and that there's absolutely nothing that they can do about it. And so, oddly, Jesus gives them permission. And the evil and unclean spirits came out and they went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now this lake that we're talking about, remember, is the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had just calmed the chaos of creation, right? We learned that in the last week's passage. But what's really important for us to understand is that how the ancients viewed the seas. They were unpredictable. They were chaotic. In a lot of ways, the ancients kind of viewed the seas uh, from a pagan perspective. Remember, this is a Gentile area. As a perspective of these these are uncontrollable things. It it must be the work of demons. It must be the work of evil that's causing storms to come up and, 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 and kill people as they're on the waters and things like this. So Jesus, in the chaos of hell, he makes them submit to him and then sends the chaos of hell back into the chaos of creation. Does that make sense? It's all his authority. The implication here is our theology should understand that Jesus has the ability, the ownership, and the authority to do whatever he wants in the spiritual realm. Absolutely anything. Jesus has the authority to end the demons from existence, to completely wipe them out, to cease their ability to even be. 
but they know that their end is coming, but Jesus also knows that it's not yet. But notice how he doesn't just allow them to stay in the region. He doesn't want this happening to somebody else. So he sends them, he casts them off into the pigs, these unclean animals from a Jewish perspective, and we're supposed to get this imagery correct. The idea here is for us to both see the severity of the demonic oppression with the name Legion and this vast number of demons that were inside of this man, but we're also supposed to get the understanding that Jesus is not like any other man because he just says the word and they're done. Okay, so that's what we're supposed to know about Christ. Here's the fourth question. What does the passage say about humanity? Not us now, but them then, because we are them in pretty much every way. What is the human condition that's shown? What is the response of humanity to these things? And these questions are really, really significant because those who were tending the pigs ran off and reported in the town in the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. Well, how could they not? We're curious people. Have you ever noticed that? Even if we know it's not good for us, we want to know stuff right? It's kind of just our nature. God has made us curious, and in our fallen state, we often are curious of things that are going to harm us as well. But these people, how could they not be interested? Their pigs just ran off a cliff, and they go, uh, we got to tell some people. And so they bring these people back, and they start telling them what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, notice this. They, the people who knew this man and knew he was an outcast, saw the man who had been possessed by demons, not any longer. He'd been possessed by the legion of demons, and he was sitting there, and notice the language, dressed and in his right mind. And what's humanity's response? Fear. Fear. Look at the response of these people. They were afraid. They were, actually, the word should be better translated, astonished and petrified. Because how could this man, one man, undo what this man had been bound to for we don't know how long? Remember at the beginning that he was chained hand and foot. There were chains put on him. He was, he was shackled all the time and nobody could subdue him. No one had the strength to do this. But now he sits here with Jesus in his right mind and not a harm to anybody. Well, how would they not be afraid? The only thing that they know is different is there's this traveling rabbi guy sitting beside him and this man is in his right mind. He used to run around cursing everybody and cutting himself living in the tombs. How could this man possibly be made right? So those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead, which is actually better translated begged, with Jesus to leave their region. Fear actually got in the way of the opportunity to have Jesus preach them. They're looking for a way to go, okay, if he's capable of this, uh, we don't have a category for that. We're not really sure what to do here. And some scholars would actually argue it's, they pleaded with Jesus to leave because they were concerned about the financial implications of the pigs. I think that that's a, a slight reading that's misplaced. It's probably partly true but how could the rest of it not be accurate? How could this man who had been subjected to all this demonic oppression now sit in his right mind, clothed, and no longer hurting himself, and the only thing that was different was that there was this traveling rabbi sitting beside him? 
And so they beg Jesus to leave out of fear. Fear of something else happening that they cannot explain. Remember, they knew this guy who had been demon-possessed. They knew his story. He was cast out. You couldn't go near the tombs. Like, people die often. They have to take people to the tombs. And this guy is just raving out in this area. But now he sits restored alongside the one man who is able to tame him. The one man who tamed what could not be tamed. Which is where we get to the point of all of it, right? Now we can ask ourselves the question, how does it apply to our lives? Because if we start backwards, we start reading things into the text that don't belong there. This happens a lot, where we'll take a, a promise of the scriptures given to a specific people in a specific context at a specific time, and we'll apply it to ourselves like it's meaningful for us. One of, one of my very favorite passages uh, to, to utilize for this when I teach our young adults is, is uh, uh, Psalm 4610. Anybody know Psalm 4610? Be still and know that... Awesome, you guys know it. That's awesome. Good for you. Do you know what comes before it? Context, right? Because we appropriate that text into, well, God is the one who stills my heart and I can, I can be still and I can understand like whatever's going on in me, God can still it. Is that true? Yes. Is that what the text says? No. The beginning of Psalm 46 is that God says, I am the one who is going to fight for you, Israel. You don't need to worry about the army coming against you because I am the Lord and I'm the one who shatters bows and bends spears and ceases the mouths of kings. So, because of that, be still. Be still and know that they're pagan gods, they're nothing. Know that I am God. And that's how we want to approach the scriptures, rightly understanding context so that we can get to the bottom line and go, okay, God, how does this actually impact my life? And it's not wrong to ask that question. We just want to ask it in the right order. What situations does this passage speak to in my life? What truth should we trust about God from these verses? Oftentimes when we read historical narrative events about the ministry of Jesus, we like to put ourselves into the play a little bit, right? We like to think of ourselves as, well, who am I inside of the audience? Well, maybe I'm Jesus. You're never Jesus. Maybe I'm the guys who own the pigs. Maybe. Maybe I'm the disciples who are watching this going... We don't have a category for this. More than likely, our hearts not redeemed by Jesus are the ones who are afraid and ask him to leave. But that's not really the point, is it? See, when we read historical narrative, sometimes the point isn't, here's a thing to go and do. Here's a new way to behave. Instead, it's actually, here's a thing to come and see, and here's a thing to believe. Maybe that's the application that we should rightly understand who God is and what he has done in Jesus as he represents the birth of this new kingdom, establishing it as the owner of it all, the supreme one who sits on the throne and is king over everything. That's what we're supposed to believe because of this passage. Remember what Mark's trying to present, a kingdom. Asking the question, who is Jesus really? And how could you not ask that question now? 
He calms the chaos of creation. He's healed a paralytic. He's said things that nobody should be able to say. He's claimed things that just don't make sense in a Jewish context. How could a man possibly claim this stuff? And then he goes above it and beyond it and he heals the supernatural. Who is Jesus? That's what Mark is trying to present to us. From the demons begging for Jesus to send them into pigs, for those who were tending the pigs and seemingly wanted no trouble due to financial loss or just purely the fear of what they have witnessed, this demon-possessed man is now healed and he wants to follow. He has a right response. As Jesus was getting back into the boat to cross over the Sea of Galilee again, the man who had been demon-possessed, look at the word that's used, begged. That's not the third time that we've seen this word be used between a people group and Jesus. The demons begged Jesus, don't destroy us, don't make us leave this region. The people who came to Jesus saying, we don't understand this, please leave, we're begging you to leave. And now the man who has been healed begs Jesus to go with him. Only one begs correctly, but strangely, he's the one who's denied. Jesus did not let him go. Instead, Jesus said to him, go home to your people. Tell your family how much the Lord has done for you, how the Lord has had mercy on you. Was it wrong for him to want to be with Jesus? Of course not. Of course not. But Jesus' plan for kingdom advancement is different than that. He says, hmm, you can't come with me because now you're going to be a witness of me. And where is he again? Context, Gentile region, Roman garrisons, pagan people, can't understand how the spiritual thing has happened. And he says, go home, tell your family. And what does he do? The man goes away and begins to tell in the Decapolis, this massive 10 city area, all that the Lord had done for him. And look at the response. The people were careless. No, the people were amazed. They were amazed. How could they not be? So we've seen that Jesus has this divine authority, that he's capable of doing whatever he wants to do, that he has the authority, the ability, and the, and the ownership over the chaos of hell to send these demons back to where they needed to be and to not be able to do this anymore, but still his eye is on kingdom advancement. How will the kingdom grow? How will people hear? I've got to go back to over there, but I'm going to send this guy whose life has been radically changed. And so we ask ourselves, these, this is how we approach scripture. Do you see the point now that Jesus has supreme authority, divine authority over the chaos of hell? You get the point of the text? How do we get there? Well, what's the context? We learned that already. Jesus across the sea into a mostly Gentile region. The, the word change shows up several times, so that's important. The word beg shows up several times, so that's important. Are there any locations mentioned? Yeah, he's in the Gerasenes. He's in this Gentile region. He's near the tombs. What style of writing is this? It's historical narrative, so it means we're going to approach it and, and, and apply it in a little bit different way. What's the original audience? What are the major themes that are at play here? Well, that one, Jesus isn't like anybody else. He could free what could not be 
any longer freed. That he is the Messiah and he's still being a little cagey about it. Remember, he silences the demon and says, you know, you're not going to ask me my name, I'm going to ask you yours. And that he's focused on the kingdom of God. This is what we're supposed to see. What does this passage say about Christ or God or theology? Well, one, that Jesus has the divine authority over the demonic, that Jesus commands demons to do what they are allowed to do. They're not allowed to do anything that Jesus doesn't give a thumbs up to right now. And for his purposes, he's going to end it all. That Jesus is the one who heals the possessed. What does Jesus do? Jesus willingly goes out of his way into a Gentile region to help one guy. Notice that? Because what's the response? Can you go away now? Right? But was Jesus mistaken? Was that not where he was supposed to go? No, he's purposeful. It's about the kingdom. What does this passage say about humanity? Well, human condition, we fear what we cannot explain, right? We're curious. These people were afraid of what the seemingly just a man could do, and they were quick to dismiss Jesus because of their fear. What was the response? They begged him to leave. Last, how do we apply this passage to our life? What, what situations does this passage speak to in life? Well, I'm going to venture a guess and suggest that none of us are first century Gentiles or Jews. Just going to put that out there. You didn't live 2,000 years ago. If you did, you look great. You're also not likely possessed by legions of demons. So how do we apply it? Remember what I said, it might not be something that we need to go and behave different. It might be something that we need to come and believe different. What truths about God do we trust from these verses? Well, that Jesus is sovereign over the chaos of creation as he silences the storms, but also he is supreme and sovereign over the chaos of hell. We can trust him. He is in control of everything. Jesus has the authority over the demonic. And I think what we need to remember at our day is this, that Jesus is the one who has the ability to heal and liberate captives. Maybe that's how we can apply it. Because humanity gets captive to a lot, easily. But if, this trust, if we're supposed to trust this Jesus, then we can understand that he is the one who is the one who liberates. Only him. It's only him who can heal. And that's how you study scripture. I hope it's a helpful tool to you. And in your notes, you've got that sheet. And if you didn't get it because you're like, I'm not a note taker, I would encourage you to go back at the end of the service, get that sheet and use it as a rubric for how to approach the next time that you're studying scripture. All right, let's pray and then we'll have a final song. Father, we do ask because of the power of the resurrected Christ that lives in us for those who believe, that you would help us trust you as our world goes sideways and spiraling, as there's so much that we are afraid of, there's so much that we can't understand, that we would trust you, that you are sovereign, that you are sovereign over creation, that you are sovereign over the chaos of hell, that you are sovereign over everything, that you rule it all and we can trust you. Father, my prayer is that, uh, as, as I've kind of laid out how I think it's important we approach the Bible, that this tool would be helpful. 
And it would simply be an, an additional tool in the tool belt of our Christian lives. May we wonder at this glorious mystery that you, Jesus, came to save broken and hostile people like us, that you're willing to give your life that we would know you, and that the perfection of your gospel is made manifest in us when we believe and trust in your goodness. Make that true of us, I pray, King Jesus, for your glory and for our good. Amen.